0: Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and we're back with part three of our exploration of psychedelics these compounds that lead to the mind manifesting experiences uh, which we've been describing in the past couple of episodes now if you're just tuning in we recommend that you probably should go and check out the previous two episodes first Uh, this is probably one it's not best to jump in midstream right yeah it's a continuous
1: uh, though at times meandering journey (laughs) <laughs> through the history of psychedelics. Uh, not an all-inclusive history. Uh, so we've stressed multiple times, you know, there's no way that we can cover all of the studies, all of the the curious tidbits of history, all the various um, uh, traditional uses of psychedelic substances. Uh, so certainly we implore you to, to check out some of the sources we've mentioned here and explore them for yourselves, uh, as well as, you know, additional resources.
0: Right. And so in the previous episodes, we mentioned some books that have been part of our guides on the way through. I know you've been enjoying some of the works of Terrence McKenna Mhm. Uh, and,
1: uh, and Michael Pollan as yeah, well. We've yeah. both uh, been reading on that.
0: Yeah, Michael Pollan's most recent book, How to Change Your Mind, is a great book about psychedelics that covers a lot of the same ground, some some history, some science, and especially this recent renaissance in psychedelic research and how it uh, – there's renewed interest, I think, since like the early to mid-2000s especially about the clinical significance of psychedelics, how they could actually be used to treat uh, mental conditions, addictions, uh, v- various problems people have, uh, and that they're not just a recreational drug. Though there are also plenty of people who would make the case that it might not be a bad thing to use them recreationally. We're we're not going to try to uh, evangelize or demonize either way, or recommend that you use them. We just want to be descriptive, right? But we will we will discuss
1: some of these viewpoints that are brought up uh, regarding uh, the beyond medicinal uses of psychedelics, right. Uh, and uh, as far as the the modern stuff, like, again, we're living in an exciting time when there there are all these these current studies going on that are revealing more and more about uh, how psychedelics can be used to uh, uh, to help treat various uh, uh, problems, psychological problems, addictions, etc. Uh, we're probably going to get into most of that in the following episode. This episode is largely going to deal with some of the original
0: studies that were taking place,
1: especially in the 1950s.
0: Yeah, Uh, So, yeah, this is a thing that comes as a surprise to a lot of people who, you know, if you think about the the origins of the drug war, the counterculture of the Mm -hmm. 1960s, and uh, I don't know, maybe you have some various ideas about the square 1950s, it might come as a shock to you that there was a flourishing body of psychedelic research going on during the 1950s and early 1960s, especially – Focusing on LSD and the treatment of things like alcoholism in the 1950s. Right. And then uh, later the use of psilocybin and various uh, types of research in the early to mid-1960s. Yeah, psychedelics did not just
1: emerge from a van at Woodstock. Right. And start corrupting the youth of America. Uh, now, now before we, we go any further, I do want to take a step back for just a little bit. And I wanted to talk about uh, about fungi, or fungi, if you will, Um uh, just in general. fungi if you're making a pizza <laughs> isn't that the italian way to say it uh, i've i've also watched uh, like british documentaries where they prefer, prefer fungi uh-huh. uh, but i'm i'm more of a fun guy so i like go i like go for i tend to go for fun guy
0: let's go with fun guy
1: all right so um i just want to take a step back and just talk about just how
0: weird and wonderful the entire Kingdom of fungi really is. Yeah. Well, we should say the reason for that, of course, if you've been with us the last two episodes, is that of all the psychedelics that we've looked at, the most focus has been on psilocybin mushrooms. Right. And even
1: LSD is derived from ergot, which is a fungi.
0: Yeah. So, uh, so
1: the so the, the the fungal element here is is very rich and second. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, so yeah, the kingdom fungi because fungi are their own kingdom. Uh, we often associate them with plants in kind of an informal way. Um, you know, but we and, and they were considered plants up until the later half of the twentieth century. But there's something different, of course. Uh, they're thought to outnumber plant species on a scale of ten to one, and they all descend from a single species that derived from a common ancestor with animals about eight hundred million to nine hundred million years ago.
0: Is it true that uh phylogenetically humans are more closely related to fungi than to plants i think that's yeah, correct that
1: that is that is what i have read yeah. uh, and uh, and it's an amazing thing to think about it's also something that uh, you know it's, it's that fact that leads some people to wonder about our relationship with fungi mm-hmm. um you know wh- why, in some cases, we have this uh, this close relationship because ultimately fungi have a lot more in common with us than they they do with plants. <laughs> um, and and again, that's interesting considering the close relationship we we have with them. And not only us, uh, there are other animals as well. I mean, think of the leaf cutter ants uh, that stand out as one of the most impressive fungi dependent species due to their practice of fungal uh, uh, agriculture. Yeah, they're mushroom farmers. Yeah. Uh, because when you think about how humans use fungi, we've certainly been focusing on um, psychedelics, but uh, certainly fungi factor into our cuisine, into our medicines, uh, both in, in major ways, uh, but and also in ways we don't, you know, major in obvious ways, but also in ways we may- maybe don't think about as much. Because certainly... You think about cooking in mushrooms. You think about culinary mushrooms that you
0: buy at the store. Which I love. Mushrooms, yeah. one of my <laughs> favorite ingredients.
1: Yeah. And, of course, not every edible mushroom can be cultivated. I, I got to ex- learn about this over the weekend. I went uh, with a licensed herbalist on a on a mushroom foraging walk. Mm-hmm. And we got to pick uh, a few different mushrooms that cannot be uh, uh, cultivated or at least can't be cultivated in a you know a dependable manner and got to bring some home and eat them.
0: Is that why chanterelles are so expensive? You can't grow them on a
1: farm? Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, well I forget the exact species, you know, but there are several varieties like that where if a, if a local restaurant is serving them, they have to depend on foragers bringing them in and selling them. And so a lot of a lot of uh, foragers, a lot of uh, you know mushroom enthusiasts kind of pay for their hobby uh, by selling their mushrooms to local restaurants. Hmm, yeah. interesting. But yeah, so there's that level. Obviously, we eat them. But they're also, you know, ingredients in many different foods, especially modern processed foods. And they're an important part, an essential part of the fermentation process. Oh, yeah, yeast. Yeah. And you don't have to be drinking some sort of weird mushroom tea to be partaking of medicinal uh, fungi because, of course, we have penicillin to consider. Oh, yeah. Which, uh, you know, is, is... I would love to do a future episode of our other podcast, Invention, on penicillin because in terms of... Uh, fungal inventions or discoveries, however you want to describe it, like that is that is a major one. Yeah. And and it
0: is totally fungi dependent. It came from mold growth. Right. Yeah. Which, of course, is a fungus.
1: And then on top of that, uh, you know, we also have we talk about the microbiome a lot, but we also have a mycobiome. Which is a small but significant portion of the human body's overall microbiome. Uh, fungi also play a crucial role in the nutrient exchange of trees, growing around their roots like fungal gloves and exchanging nitrogen for sugars. Uh, and this uh, forms the basis of what uh, some researchers call the wood wide web, <laughs> uh, which is kind of a, that's that's a little too cute. It's I don't a know. little it's a little too cute uh, <laughs> because ultimately it's like really just mind blowingly weird to yes. think about. Because we're talking about a fungal network of hyphae. Uh, remember uh, that a mushroom. We we often think of the mushroom as the thing itself, but the mushroom is just the fruiting body, um, and the you know the, the spore spewing death emergence of a larger organism. And uh, so, the, these this network of hyphae underground and growing around the uh, the the trees and between trees. It allows for the uh, plants to distribute resources such as sugar, nitrogen, and phosphorus, uh, you know, between one tree and another. Uh, and by some definitions, this comprises a form of communication.
0: These types of thinking can get really psychedelic on their own.
1: Oh, absolutely. Um Mycologist uh, Paul Stamets, for instance, who uh, did we mention? Oh yeah, him we. In the previous yeah, he came episode, up several did, yeah. times. So yeah, he's he's uh, like a mushroom answer for everything guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, a very important figure in, in modern myc- mycology, and he's gone so far as to, to to suggest, according to Michael Pollan in his book, that these networks are in some sense conscious, that they're aware of their environment and they're able to respond to challenges accordingly. And Pollan says that that initially he thought this was mere metaphor. You know, that clearly uh, Stamets is just being overly enthusiastic and metaphoric about uh, what's going on uh, with these systems, but that he thinks that growing evidence actually suggests that it might be there might be more involved here.
0: Well, I think this depends heavily on just simply what you mean when you use the word conscious, right. because uh, there. I think you can definitely make the case that mushrooms in very interesting and surprising ways are uh, aware of their environments, you know, able to respond to to stimuli and stuff like that. Uh, I, th- I think it would be much harder to make the case that, you know, the thing that we think of is like the hard problem of consciousness, meaning that it is having a subjective experience. There's something that it's like to be the mushroom, yeah, uh, I I'm not saying that that's not true, but I don't I know like what the much, evidence yeah, for that it, would I be. think
1: it's much uh, more of a stretch yeah. to make that case. Now, on a on a similar similar lines though, I got to hear Eduardo Cohn, uh, associate professor of anthropology at McGill University, uh, speak on on basically the same topic at the uh, 2019 World Science Festival. Uh, he's the author of a book uh, titled How Forests Think. And he's uh, worked extensively with uh, Amazonian people in his work, especially consider- concerning their use of psychedelic substances.
0: But he's focused on the same issue of like uh, the use of fungal networks in the soil within forests as a as a type of communication or even thought.
1: Yeah, he he gets into this as well. Uh, so uh, just to to give you an idea, because it's ultimately you know kind of a-, a-, a heady concept, but but it's basically this idea that not that you have non human entities that quote unquote think via an ability to represent, produce and interpret signs.
0: Interesting.
1: And uh, so th- this is a this is a quote from his book How Forests Think. Quote, life is constitutively semiotic. That is life is through and through the product of sign processes. What differentiates life from the inanimate physical world is that life forms represent the world in some way or another and these representations are intrinsic to their being. What we share with non-human living creatures, then, is not our embodiment, as certain strains of phenomenological approaches would hold, but the fact that we all live with and through signs. We all use signs as canes that represent part of the world to us in some way or another. In doing so,
0: signs make us what we are interesting semiotic definition of life I don't know if I've ever encountered that before and I yeah. took a class on semiotics oh yeah oh well, no I was that kind of weirdo <laughs> well uh, I'm, I'm very interested uh, in his his thoughts and his work
1: I'd, I'd, I'd love to actually uh, see about having him on the show in the future mm-hmm But uh, like I said, he's worked extensively with Amazonian peoples and explored their use of ayahuasca. And he said that Amazonians use several technologies, including psychedelics, but also dreams, to connect with the mind of the forest. And he says that these approaches break down the way language tells us what we are. They help them find a path forward, a path of healing and problem-solving. And he also pointed out that the shamans of the Amazon basically have a message for the rest of the world. Mm -hmm. They want uh, us to know that the world is a living world and that we have to connect ourselves with the mind of the forest to save ourselves from the planetary depression that we are now entering into. Mm. And uh, I found this really interesting because this is, uh, even though Cohn, to my knowledge, didn't never mentions Terence McKenna in his work. Uh But some of this, like, lines up with the messages that McKenna uh, had in uh, uh, The Food of the Gods and his other work regarding uh, this idea of an archaic revival, a necessary reconvergence with the natural world through psychedelics and... Uh, at least in in McKenna's definition, an overall, you know, bohemian thread of human cultures to save us uh, from the, you know, the doom of a nature-deprived, ego-driven dominator culture.
0: To save us from silent running.
1: Yeah, yeah, in a way, yeah, absolutely, yeah. There, the, it, it matches up with like this theory. I mean, this um, this viewpoint of of modern life. We'll come back to this. That you see this throughout uh, a lot of the a lot of psychedelic literature and also just sort of counterculture nineteen sixties messaging, mm-hmm. including *Silent Running*, which was very much a product of that time. Uh, the science fiction film that we've uh, discussed previously on the show. Now, uh, Cohn mentioned at the World Science Festival that he thinks even our modern fascination with psychedelics may be a symptom. Of our disconnection with nature, and he says the solution isn't simply to to you know take a psychedelic substance, but to rather live psychedelically, uh, to live uh,
0: live to be in the emergent mind. Hmm. What, what exactly do you think he meant by that quote? To like, uh, what does the emergent mind mean there?
1: Um, my understanding, and like I said, perhaps we can get him on the show to discuss these these topics in greater depth. But I think he's he's talking about. Uh, this basic idea that again you see again and again in, in the, among advocates of psychedelic that there's that there's something wrong with modern humans that we're we're cut off from each other that we're we're sort of in these little individual cells of the mind mm-hmm. and we are in many cases have great difficulty in being part of some sort of a larger system uh, you know it's, it may be a bit elaborate to, you know, to, to think of it. I mean, I don't know if I would, I would describe it in my understanding is like an emergent mind, you know, but, uh, but, but that's kind of the vibe I get from it. The idea that like we're, that we're cut off from each other, that we don't understand each other. We don't understand nature. Uh, you know, we're all you know, wrapped up in our own egos. And if we could break through those boundaries, uh, that we would have a better relationship with each other and with the world.
0: Like so often in the world of psychedelics and stuff coming from psychedelic enthusiasts, that that's the kind of statement that is either truly profound or extremely banal.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I get it because I know a, a lot of people out there are probably shaking their hands and saying like, well, that just sounds like hippie nonsense. And it's not even new hippie nonsense. It's hippie nonsense I've heard time and time again. But for, for my own part, you know, I think, yeah, you can be overly optimistic about a lot of this stuff but on the other hand you know you look at the the literature the scientific literature uh, that that is that shows us and is continuing to show us what psychedelics can do i think at, at this point it's you know it is more a question of like at what level are psychedelics useful uh, you know, is it is it purely in the clinical world? Is it purely among, uh, you know, uh, people who are suffering from some condition or another? Or does it go beyond that? You know, I, I, I think it d- depends on who's advocating on where that line should be drawn. I mean, some people draw it all the way at the horizon.
0: Where you draw it, I think, is clearly a source of the conflict that led to the demonization of psychedelics, and to the sort of closing of the psychedelic research regime in the in mm-hmm. the mid to late 1960s, right? Yeah. Well, on that note, let's let's go to the
1: 1960s. In fact, let's go to the 1950s. Okay. Uh, let's go. Let's go back. Uh, <laughs> in to fact, the let's go to the 1940s. Let's do it. I'll, I'll take you up on that. We'll go all the way back to the 40s, and let's just discuss 20th century uh, psychedelic research uh, itself. So. As we've discussed, most of these substances are nothing new. Humans have used them for thousands of years, and even the synthesized substance LSD, of course, is derived from uh, ergot fungi that has been around forever as well. Right. But there was certainly a period of time uh, between Albert Hoffman's 1943 bicycle ride and Nixon's Controlled Substance Act of 1970, uh, in which there were tons of studies that examined psychedelics uh, and, and and especially LSD in many cases because it was more readily available at the time.
0: Uh, one reason also, I think, is that the the pharmaceutical manufacturer that Albert Hoffman worked for in the 1930s mm-hmm. and 40s, uh, Sandoz, which I guess held the patent on LSD, right. was just Giving it out like candy, basically. Yeah, they they were. I think they were trying to find uses for it and their their method of doing that was like well let's just give it for free to tons of researchers and they'll find a good way to use it
1: yeah it's kind of like in the lorax the sneed was invented which everyone needs it's like if you invented this thing that clearly has uh, some sort of use but you're not exactly sure how to market it you're not sure what the the use is for it you you kind of just let everybody play with it until you can figure out uh, how you're going to make uh, your billions of dollars off of it uh-huh
0: but i don't say that to undermine the fact that it really does seem like some researchers were finding extremely promising clinical uses for LSD in the 1950s. Yeah, particularly in how they might be used to treat addiction, depression, um,
1: obsessive-compulsive disorder, schizophrenia, autism, and uh, end-of-life anxiety. So in his book, Michael Pollan chats with uh, Stephen Ross, M.D. of the NYU uh, Psilocybin uh, Cancer Anxiety Study. Uh, which, of course, comes back to that end-of-life anxiety question uh-huh. that was explored earlier.
0: I guess we'll explore that more probably in the next episode. Yeah, yeah we will.
1: But in, in the book, uh, Ross mentions to Pollen that you know these efforts involved roughly 40,000 research participants and more than 1,000 clinical papers. So when we're talking about... LSD studies uh, of, of the, the 1950s, for instance. You know, we're not talking about, we're, we're going to highlight a few isolated studies, mm-hmm. but we're not talking about like uh, just a, a study here, a study there. You know, there, there was a lot of research going on. Yeah, it was huge. It wasn't just a blip. Yeah, and, and initially re- researchers thought that LSD and later psilocybin, that they might be used to understand psychosis as they believed that individuals who were using these substances de- displayed similar thoughts and behavior. And so clinicians also thought that, well, you could take uh, one of these substances yourself and therefore get a taste of what uh, a psychotic episode is like and then be better able to empathize with a patient.
0: Exactly. And in this vein, the same compounds we now refer to as psychedelic were then referred to by uh, many clinicians as psychotomimetics, mm-hmm. mimicking the state of psychosis. So your therapist could take this in order to understand what you were going through.
1: Now, a key figure from this period, uh, English uh, uh, psychiatrist Humphrey Osmond, entered the picture, and uh, he figured that okay, if you had a substance like uh, uh, mescaline, and if it could if it could induce this sort of symptom, these sort of symptoms in uh, in in a, in a human who took it, then perhaps uh, you know schizophrenia. Uh, was due to a chemical imbalance in the brain, which is kind of you know ultimately a, a, a an eye-opening hypothesis, right? If if this substance makes my brain do this, then perhaps what this patient's brain is doing is due to something, you know, very chemical in nature as well, something that could be addressed perhaps with another chemical.
0: Well, yeah, I mean – and I think this middle of the 20th century period was actually a very important time for understanding the role of physical causes in mental phenomena – Uh, Like, I mean, you know, there was, of course, the rise of Skinnerism, like B.F. Skinner Mm -hmm. and behaviorism, which uh, you can have lots of criticisms about. Maybe it doesn't take into account cognition and the mind and uh, enough about what our thoughts and emotions mean, because it was just about what can we do to control and measure external behaviors, because that's the only thing we have access to as scientists. that, That might not be the right approach, but it was certainly useful in some ways to kind of clear out, I think, a lot of the uh, the kind of almost religious kind of metaphysical baggage that had been coming along for the ride with some versions of psychology up until then, with you know Freud and Jung and all that.
1: Yeah, yeah. So, so you know, ultimately, we have this this push for biochemical answers. To uh, you know, concerning uh, mental uh, issues, and this propels the the, the young field of neurochemistry, uh, leading in time to our modern understanding of neurotransmitters and their role in our mental states, leading to the discovery of serotonin and the uh, development of SSRI antidepressant drugs. Mm-hmm. But then, you know, some also made the connection between the symptoms of psychedelic use and delirium tremens, or the DTs. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is, of course, associated with uh, alcohol abuse, alcoholism.
0: Alcohol withdrawal, yes. I think. Yeah. So, like, if you, you're you used to extensive alcohol consumption and then somebody stops, they might experience these uh, negative symptoms that have been referred to as the delirium tremens.
1: Yeah, so this led to to the, I think, by modern, uh, from a modern viewpoint, kind of a weird idea, a weird-seeming idea, that you could use LSD to sort of shock alcoholics into sobriety. And so Osmond and a gentleman by the name of Abram Hoffer conducted uh, these studies with hundreds, I think 700, according to Paulin, uh of uh, alcoholics, and uh, they found it effective roughly half the
0: time. Uh, You mean using LSD to uh, treat alcoholics? Yes,
1: yes. And uh, this particular study, by the way, was one of the ones that caught the eyes of Stephen Ross decades later as an example of the therapeutic potential of psychedelics, quote, buried in plain sight. Mm -hmm. Um, But anyway, the the, uh, the original researchers here, they, they expected that the trips in question, the psychedelic experiences in question would be essentially just nightmare fuel uh-huh. that would uh, approximate the feelings of the DTs. And this was seemingly based on uh, physician Sidney Katz's reports that uh, Paulin summarizes as being something like you'd uh, you'd see in an in anti-LSD propaganda from the 1960s, right? just about how it was just, you know, just pure nightmare fuel and, you know, just running from demons sort of a thing. And um, But, uh, of course, what happened is that they gave, uh, in their study anyway, they found that when they gave these substances to people, they reported all manner of things, uh, beautiful things even. So there was definitely some anxiety, some depression, some hallucination uh, in individuals when they were uh, administered uh, psychedelics. But most reported feelings that were described as transcendental in nature. So, for instance, an ability to see oneself objectively almost as if for the first time. Mm. And so this would seem to be the experience, or this was possibly an experience that was was playing a role in them then being able to uh, uh, cease their addiction. And, of course, outside of the black box of experience, the the research results spoke for themselves and indicated that, you know, something was working here. So this opened up the idea that there was something more to the experience and that it might be utilized uh, as a treatment method.
0: Now, I know it was especially in Canada that, yes. uh, that LSD treatment for alcoholism was picked up. And I think, yeah, you, I think
1: this one, this particular study was in Saskatchewan, I believe.
0: Yeah. Uh, well, I think that was where Humphrey Osmond was mm-hmm. based for a long time. Uh, but that uh, another thing I think to make clear is that it's it's not thought that just giving somebody the drug triggers a change in the body that defeats alcoholism. Correct. Yeah. That that there's something important going on by uh, about the nature of the experience that people have on psychedelics. Uh, that contributes to their recovery and and staying sober over time, right? Right. Yeah. This sort of uh, this
1: metaphorical shaking of the snow globe, mm-hmm. uh, as, uh, as some call it, uh, is playing a role in allowing uh, some sort of uh, uh, you know curative therapy to take place. Now, I should point out that uh, in, in terms of this uh, particular study, uh, later on in the early 60s, the Addiction Research Foundation in Toronto set out to replicate these results with better controls, and they failed to re- reproduce the you know the same robust uh, results. Uh, and, and this ended up giving fuel to critics of, of LSD, but also
0: supporters, again, stress the importance of set and setting. Right. I mean, this is something that uh I guess we'll come back to this in a minute, so mm-hmm. I'll, I'll save my tangent here yes. for later. But yeah, we'll put a pin in that
1: and just know that we're okay. going to come back to the importance of set and setting in research. But uh, but still, uh, there there was enough going on here that people were very encouraged. And uh, by the uh, by the end of the 1950s, LSD was considered a, like a miracle cure for alcohol addiction. A lot of people were excited about it. And uh, Pollan points out that one of the people that it was that ended up getting excited about it was none other than Bill Wilson. Co-founder of Alcoholics Anonymous, hmm. yeah, who uh, who incidentally cre- uh, credited his own sobriety to a life-changing mystical experience he had on on belladonna, uh, which uh, also has psychoactive properties and was used in a treatment in treatment at Towns Hospital in New York City in uh, 1934. That's when when he uh, uh, had the substance as
0: part of the treatment. Uh-huh. And, and so you can see that in a lot of the Alcoholics Anonymous messaging, like the mm-hmm. idea of. Uh, uh, the the idea of acknowledging a higher power, you know, I think a lot of times people just interpret that as a more traditional kind of like, you know, you need a religion or something. Yeah, I mean, um, especially if you're meeting in a church basement or, or you know, or something. Yeah, but it, in fact, it, it seems like this has something to do with the common kinds of mystical experiences that people have on psychedelics where they, you know, they commune with some kind of reality greater than themselves. They They believe that they've encountered some other being or some universal consciousness or, or the universe itself. It might have something to do with the ego dissolution that sometimes people experience on psychedelics. Uh, Wilson, by the way, would later try LSD with some researchers in
1: L.A., and he actually thought that it might prove very useful in treating alcoholism and that, that it might even have a place in A.A., Uh, But others in the in the organization struck down this idea, you know, for for a few different reasons, one of which being that it would perhaps muddy the like the messaging of the organization itself. Right.
0: Like, uh, you know, that you would turn to another chemical. Right. Um, Yeah. And so for a time, LSD assisted psychotherapy was considered a powerful, legitimate and evidence based method for treating alcoholism in Canada. Definitely but maybe we should take a break and then when we come back we can discuss some problems with uh, scientific research on psychedelics. All right, we're back. Now, I think this is a good place to start discussing the fact that there are widely acknowledged inherent difficulties with doing rigorous scientific experiments on the effects of psychedelics. And so one of these problems is the problem with placebo control. Now, normally... When you want to test and see if a new drug works, you need to do a placebo-controlled test. Uh, you have to do this if you want to sort out specific pharmacological efficacy versus the placebo effect, you know, the effect that uh, sometimes people who are given a treatment, even if the treatment doesn't have active ingredients, just the fact that they think they're being treated mm-hmm. appears to cause uh, a feeling that their condition has improved. They'll report less, fewer negative symptoms or something like that. So, yeah, imagine you give 100 people a new anti-nausea drug and then 50 of them report their nausea going away. Was it because the compound in the pill relieves nausea 50 percent of the time or could much or all of that response just be due to the placebo effect, to people thinking that they're being treated? So if you placebo control your drug trial to find out if there's a difference, subjects get randomly sorted into multiple groups with one group getting the actual drug being tested and one group getting a pill that has no active ingredients, then you might be able to get a better idea. If the group who receives the drug gets significantly more of a desired outcome than the placebo group, then you can have confidence that the drug probably actually works. So If you wanted to run a placebo-controlled test of whether, say, psilocybin helps people kick an alcohol addiction and then stay sober for six months, you'd want to run a test with people who actually get psilocybin versus people who think that they might be getting it but are actually getting a placebo. So why is this a problem with psychedelics? Well, that's because of the next issue, which is blinding. Uh, So the thing you've got to do to have an effective placebo-controlled test is blinding and double-blinding. This is to avoid response biases from subjects and from the people who are carrying out the test. You have to blind the experiment, meaning subjects don't know which group they're in, and the people working with the subjects to conduct the experiment don't know who's in what group. Uh, psychedelics make this hard because most of the time you can definitely tell whether you've received a large dose of psilocybin versus a placebo.
1: Uh, Right. I mean, even even if the individual, uh, the test subject in question has no experience of psychedelic use, there's a very good chance that they have been exposed to some representation of it, some expectation of what the, uh, the, 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 the the experience is going to be like just through media and culture.
0: Yeah, well, and the effect of the drug tends to be so powerful on the mind that it's nearly impossible for you to think like, no, I didn't get anything. I mean, no, like mm-hmm. if, if you are becoming a comet's tail of disembodied consciousness, you watch your ego dissolve like sugar in a stream – you're probably part of the active test group,
1: right but but yeah even but even if the effects are not th- that strong, if the right. dosage is lower, like it will be undeniable,
0: yeah, I mean, maybe not always because some people are very suggestible, uh, yeah. you know but but the majority of the time people are going to be able to tell what group they're in uh, furthermore, the experimenters can usually tell if the subject they're working with is on LSD or psilocybin versus a placebo like if You know, people who are on these drugs tend to act a certain way that's pretty different than people who are just getting a sugar pill. Now, there are some ways of making this a little bit better. For example, you can use an active placebo, which is a a placebo that does something to the body that the subject will be able to sense. Uh, One example that has been used in historical research is niacin, which causes physiological effects like flushing of the face and tingling in the body. Hmm. Uh, But still, a lot of subjects and experimenters can probably still pretty easily tell the difference between if you've gotten a large dose of psilocybin or LSD versus niacin. So you still are going to have this blinding problem. But then there's another problem that makes it worse, Uh, a problem with conducting psychedelic research the same way you would conduct other drug research. And that is, as we mentioned a minute ago, the importance of set and setting. And I remember it was in the first episode, I think, where we talked mostly about the importance of set and setting. Uh, People's takeaways from psychedelic-assisted therapy seem hugely dependent on their expectations, on the environment, and on the guide.
1: Yeah, I I think it was Apollon who pointed out that really the only person to ever take LSD without uh, any
0: expectations of
1: what it might consist of was Albert Hoffman himself.
0: (laughs) Yeah, because he took it by accident and nobody knew what it was yet, yeah. That's funny. But, I mean, it, it's clearly true that people's experiences on these drugs are highly dependent on, on priming and on stimuli from around them and, and what they're told going in and all that kind of stuff.
1: Yeah, I mean, like, for instance, just maintaining a very, like, calm, therapeutic, uh, in a physical environment, having people interact with you, uh, you know, the researchers in, in question, in a likewise manner, uh, mm-hmm. that sort of thing.
0: In other words, I would say to get the most clinical use and the most positive effects out of these drugs, it seems like you specifically want to do the opposite of what you normally do in a drug trial. You explicitly do want to bias the subject's expectations and interpretations of their drug experience in a way that suggests it will help them with their problems. Yeah, so basically... If, yeah, if you're doing
1: a a, a a psilocybin study in which the individuals taking psilocybin are going to be laying on a beanbag chair, for instance, listening to some ambient music mm-hmm. and attended to by you know uh, you know very courteous uh, therapist, you would have to have the same situation going on with the placebo group. And in doing that, you have all of these like situational effects that may well create like something kind of, I mean, certainly not the psychedelic experience itself, but some sort of comforting, suggestible um,
0: uh, situation. Mm-hmm. But this has also been invoked to explain some of the differences in like some of the replication difficulties mm-hmm. that people have had with psychedelic experiments, because. Sometimes, you know, people in these experiments are given psychedelics with a certain kind of set and setting, and then the replication attempt just sort of gives them the psychedelics but doesn't replicate the set and setting and finds that, oh, in this, in this study that didn't replicate the original set and setting, people are not getting nearly as positive a benefit. Uh, and th- that just seems to show, again, how dependent the experience is on set and setting.
1: Well, it comes back to like what the substance does that, you know, and, uh, these, even these early researchers, they, they you know, pretty early on were convinced that it was not something the, the substance was doing to the body. It was what it was the mind state it was creating. Exactly. And what yeah. could be gained from that mindset?
0: Yes, uh, psychedelics seem to be in in to whatever extent that they are effective at helping people and have clinical significance they seem to be more a facilitator of experiences than a direct action drug it's not that you take psilocybin and the compound cures your alcoholism but that taking psilocybin allows you to have an experience of profound emotional significance that helps people overcome alcoholism Uh, it seems it's the experience that actually matters so just say locking somebody in a sterile uncomfortable white room giving them a shot of psilocybin Uh, without a therapist or guide present is maybe not a very good recipe for getting the most positive effects out of the drug. Right, But this is frustrating if you're like a – you know, if you're used to running drug tests because it seems that when psychedelics have a clinical significance, it is in some ways similar to an active placebo. It just appears to be an extremely effective active placebo. So, yeah, there have been these kind of difficulties over the years. Like, I'd, I'd say the bottom line is that objective research is so important in medical science, but the standard methods that we have for objective research don't apply especially well to psychedelics. And some methods of achieving objectivity appear to directly counteract the most powerful clinical potentials of these compounds. Another problem we could talk about from the history of psychedelic research is not a systematic methodological obstacle, but it's more like a historical trend that, you know, we're not alone in observing. Other people have Mm -hmm. observed this, which is that uh, I would say due to the unique properties of these drugs, a lot of researchers who focus on this subject area appear over time to tend to lose objectivity and become more endorsers and enthusiasts than objective scientists, just trying to find out what's true.
1: Well, I mean, in uh, I don't know to what extent it's a lot of them, but I guess well, the problem is
0: that the ones
1: who do become certainly more noticeable. Yes. Their voices are often the loudest. Right
0: now, and I, again, I want to be clear: I'm not saying all people, all scientists who work with psychedelics do this, or maybe not, probably not even most. But right, but a, but some a do. significant number yeah. do. Follow this path,
1: right? And and in, and again, their voices are the loudest. And uh, in terms of loud, the uh, psychedelic voices, few voices were louder than Timothy Leary's. Yes. Um, so, uh, like, one example of, of, of what you're talking about here, Timothy Leary's work on the Harvard psilocybin project in the early 60s. Uh, some of Leary's uh, methodology there was highly criticized. Yeah. And it basically seems like he was intentionally biasing the experiments to, to make psychedelics uh, seem more clinically useful, uh, you know, which is a shame because the research does actually suggest that they're useful. Yeah. It's just, uh, uh, you know, he, he, he was being hasty. He was being hasty. He was taking shortcuts. Uh, for example, An example of this is the Concord Prison Experiment, which was aimed at studying recidivism in inmates that were administered psilocybin. And uh, you know, this is basically the idea: it's like if you give them psilocybin, like how. Uh, are they going to successfully transfer into, uh, 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 you know, back into normal everyday life or are they going to wind up in back in the prison system again? Uh-huh. And so he, uh, so, you know, it sounds like a, a pretty interesting premise, but then the execution was flawed. He looked at recidivism rates 10 months after release for the psilocybin takers, but 30 months later for the control group. <laughs> Uh, and of course, time is vital in all of this because you're dealing with somebody like returning to life. Uh-huh. Uh, and, and so, like, the I mean, not just like month to month, but like day to day, week to week right. is vital in, in any kind of study having to do with recidivism. You know, you know because like that first day back, you know, what, what's somebody doing? They're, you know, visiting uh-huh. family or whatever. It's, it's the as the days go by, as the weeks go by, as the months go by, they're going to have to potentially deal with greater temptation.
0: Yeah, and he and he was widely
1: criticized by colleagues at the time for this. Yeah, uh, Richard Alpert, uh, who was also known as Ram Dass, uh, would later explain that the, you know that the aim of the project was solid and had a reasonable therapeutic model, but but it, it would but it would have required long term application and study, and Leary just didn't have the patience for long term studies. Ugh. Uh, Ultimately, this is something you see throughout Leary's life. You know, this restlessness, this lack of patience, passion, but then a tendency to rush things. And it's uh, almost like he had more system one thinking, you know, than system uh, two thinking. Mm -hmm. And of course, uh, this is not the preferable balance for serious scientific inquiry.
0: Right. Now, there was another classic experiment from the golden years of psychedelic research uh, in the 1950s and early 60s. And this one I think we should look at for a minute. This was uh, done under the supervision of Timothy Leary's Harvard Psilocybin Project. But it wasn't, I think, directly carried out by Leary. It was directly carried out by a guy named Walter Pankey. And this was the 1962 experiment with the use of psilocybin to occasion mystical experiences that were subjectively perceived as positive and valid by religious people. And this is sometimes known as the Marsh Chapel Experiment or the Good Friday Experiment because it took place on Good Friday, 1962. So Walter Pankey at the time was a divinity student at Harvard Divinity School. And the basic details went like this. So you had 20 divinity students in the Boston area, And each got an injection before a Good Friday service at the Marsh Chapel uh, of Boston University. Half got psilocybin, half got an active placebo, which was niacin. And remember, niacin tends to cause flushing and tingling, so they would feel something going on. And the basic findings were that the students in the test group overwhelmingly reported positive and, in some cases, life-changing religious experiences. And some later rated this experiment, this Good Friday service day, as among the most profound and significant experiences of their lives. But there were complications. Uh, One subject on psilocybin had some kind of episode uh, which involved trying to leave the chapel – to proclaim a religious message and he had to be tranquilized with Thorazine. I, I think they backed off with the tranquilizing people with Thorazine after this experiment. And, and these were the, yeah, these were the researchers,
1: not like the old church ladies. Right. right?
0: <laughs> who, who may also keep Thorazine on the, hand. The just pastor tranquilized yeah. him with Thorazine. <laughs> <laughs> and so I was like, I was wondering, you know, how did this experiment hold up over time? What do people think looking back on it? There, there have been some later attempts to analyze and follow up on the experiment. Uh, one was by Rick Doblin of of MAPS, uh, an organization. I don't know if we've mentioned already, but I think you'll refer to later. Yeah, it's
1: the uh, Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, they're, they're involved in a number of research efforts in, involving psychedelics and also MDMA. Um, by the way, they also are involved in... Uh, Something called the, the Zendo Project, which aims to promote proper psychedelic peer support, especially for individuals, especially first timers who are having a difficult trip. Mm. Uh, so I think they've like set up operations at um, you know, major cultural festivities such as Burning Man before. Mm. But I think this is a really interesting project. I'd like to see how it develops because um, I think it's an, an important step if you know if we're going to see uh, decriminalization of psychedelic substances. Uh, in the United States.
0: Oh yeah, I mean, this is something we should continue to explore more as we go on. But I, I think um, the idea of having the proper guides who know what they're doing mm-hmm. is in a is a very important part of what might be considered legitimate psychedelic use. I mean, a lot of the research on the clinical significance of psychedelics I, we should really stress is not just giving somebody a compound and then leaving them alone. Right. right? You know, it is. Uh, it is psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy. So you might have a a guide, a, a psychiatrist or a psychologist or somebody who is experienced in working with people uh, a therapist of some kind who either like guides you through the experience itself, or sort of holds the space with you while you have your experience, and then later helps you talk through it and go through the integration process. I think the idea of having positively socially chaperoned and uh, and sort of like uh, expert guided psychedelic experiences is, is a very important thing that shouldn't be un- underemphasized, and it's present in a lot of the traditional uses of psychedelics, like when we talked about. Uh, the traditional uses with the curanderas in southern Mexico. Mm -hmm. I mean, this wouldn't be you just... Take a drug out in the void by yourself. I mean, you would be guided by someone who is a is a religious leader. Yeah, you would have
1: a shaman, and in these uh, these test cases, you would have a therapist uh, or a, you know a researcher that was uh, that was filling in for that role. And then outside of the uh, you know the traditional usage or the uh, the research or medicinal or psychotherapist uh, uh, usage, there is still room for an individual like that, like somebody that is guiding the experience and setting and and, and attending to set and setting.
0: Yeah. Oh, but – so uh, that was important to mention, but we did get sidetracked. Yes, so yeah, I was, we're talking
1: about Doblin. Rick, yeah, the, Doblin. The,
0: well, the follow-up and analysis of the original Marsh Chapel experiment from mm-hmm. 1962. Rick Doblin followed up on it in the 1990s, and he made some criticisms of the original studies methodology. Like he pointed out that there were the problems you would expect with double blinding that we already talked about earlier. Um There were some imprecise questions in the questionnaire given to subjects to evaluate their experience and a few other things like the original study failed to report the fact that one participant had to be tranquilized. So it seems like (laughs) something you probably should have mentioned. Yeah, And there was also the fact that while on the whole the students viewed their mystical experiences on psilocybin as very positive and profound – Many of them struggled with intense bouts of fear and difficulty and negative emotions at some point over the course of their trips. And this probably should have been reported in more detail than it was, uh, though the experiences were positive overall. But also, so Doblin conducted a 25-year follow-up with some of the seminary students from the original study, and he confirmed that they reported sustained, profound positive effects from their religious experiences with psilocybin. And I think it's really notable of the Marsh Chapel experiment that this was not like so many of the studies that came before research into how to treat people's problems like addictions or mental Mm -hmm. illness. But to use psychedelics in a way to enhance the experience of so-called healthy normals. This was a case where, you know, these people weren't like suffering and needing a treatment. It was like could they have a profound religious experience that they deemed valid on with the aid of these substances and the answer appears to be yes but that's a very different question than most drug trials investigate, right? Right.
1: Yeah. I mean, generally, it is, it is with the aim of curing a particular malady, of, of seeing if something, if a substance is useful in treating a particular condition or symptoms. Uh, but this is more about, if anything, it's about treating the human condition itself, right? Uh, seeing what effect it could have on on just sort of baseline human experience.
0: Yeah. And I think maybe we should take another break and then come back and explore that concept a little more. All right, we're back. All right, so we sort of know the general outline of what happened in the mid-1960s. There was this significant backlash to what had been for a while now at least a decade and a half of interesting and in some ways very promising psychedelic research. Uh, But by 1970 or so, drugs were public enemy number one, and scientific research in them dropped off dramatically, encountered a lot of obstacles at that point. And it's only more recently that we've seen this renaissance of of psychedelic research. So I guess we might want to look at a question of like, and this is something that's hard to answer in a definitive way, but examining some possible reasons uh, for the cause of the moral panic around psychedelics in the mid 1960s. First of all, I think. Some of it you could chalk up to a somewhat legitimate reaction to the perceived over-enthusiasm of people like Timothy Leary. Some of the scientists involved in psychedelic research were clearly not practicing the most rigorous objective science and were in some cases turning into enthusiasts and gurus, something more like alternative religious leaders. And it's not surprising at all that this caused a lot of skepticism and and uh, and push back within the scientific community
1: right yeah because here's here's leary this kind of weird and at times kind of goofy character Mm -hmm. um and and at times very profound and well spoken i mean he was he was a, a very charismatic guy but you can you can understand i think uh you know especially members of the older generation and more traditional folks uh being a little suspicious of this character
0: yeah uh, another big part of the backlash, I think, which pollen definitely acknowledges at length in his book, is specifically – this is what we were talking about before the break – how scary it seemed that some psychedelic enthusiasts were recommending psychedelics to so-called healthy normals, you know, just regular people. Like, it, it, the idea is well, we're going to tolerate a lot of different methods of treating people who are facing problems, people who have mental illnesses or addictions. Uh, And many of these solutions could include drugs, even drugs that have a potential for abuse uh, because we think, well, it's, you know, it's fighting a problem and it's helping people get better. But what if a drug implies that the whole of society is sick and there's something wrong with the baseline culture that so-called normal people could benefit from using it to affect change on themselves?
1: Yeah, I mean it's quite a pill to, hard pill to swallow. Um, yeah. You know to to hear oh there's something there's something terribly wrong with this or there's something terribly wrong with the way we're conducting ourselves in the modern world. I mean this continues to be one aspect of uh, you know of the problem with uh, uh, communicating the you know the the, the dire um, threat of climate change is because there is a certain amount of judgment to be placed on the way that that, uh, modern industrial society has conducted itself.
0: Well, yeah, I think that's right. I mean, there's always going to be negative reaction against any indictment that goes to our general way of life. Like we we want to indict, uh, you know, antisocial abnormality, like the the murderer or the you know somebody who did something very unusual. But what if everybody is doing something that's harmful? If if that's the case, you want to make, you're going to have a hard time getting people to accept it. Absolutely,
1: yeah, yeah. I mean, ultimately, nobody nobody's going to want. Everybody's afraid of change. Yeah, and certainly the 1960s were a time in where there in which there was a great fear. Uh, of, of various changes, not only the changes that were, uh, you know, offered uh, or at least advertised by, uh, you know, the, the psychedelic counterculture, but also the fear of change via uh, political ideologies, the fear of communism, yeah. uh, the fear of racial integration, mm-hmm. uh, you know, all, all these various changes that were uh, that were taking place in
0: society. Yeah, and so you can definitely see why there's a lot of fear around the idea of treating normality. Yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, so Aldous Huxley and Humphrey Osmond, they you know were friends and wrote back and forth to each other in the 1950s, uh, and there there was one letter that was quoted in Pollan's book that I thought was interesting, where Huxley was writing to Osmond in 1955 about people taking compounds like mescaline and LSD, and Huxley wrote quote. People will think that they are going mad when, in fact, they are beginning when they take it to go sane. And also, as Pollan notes from his experience researching the book, that there's this, quote, drift from the treatment of individuals with psychological problems to a desire to treat the whole of society. And uh, this drift, he says, is a change that, quote, seems eventually to infect everyone who works with psychedelics, touching scientists, too. And so I think. Everyone there is probably an overstatement. I think he's, you know, being a little casual, but it does seem to me to be a startling trend, maybe one that should give us pause. I don't know. I mean, it's worth considering that. But like how many scientists involved in the uh, in the investigation of psychedelics do end up thinking that it. Shouldn't just be used to treat people in a clinical setting who are experiencing one problem or another, but it's something that uh, so-called healthy normals should take to improve their lives and improve the whole of society.
1: Well, I mean, it, it's it comes back to uh, the traditional uses of these substances. In many cases, they were they were not uh, necessarily taken purely as, as as medicine for an ailment, but mm-hmm. in many cases, just part of you know your your. Continued, uh, you know, what what would we describe now as you know mental health?
0: Uh-huh. Uh huh. Yeah. I mean, uh, that's a good point. And while we certainly don't want to demonize these substances, I do think also we should be skeptical of of that impulse. I mean, uh, it's worth asking the question: Is that correct, or is that just is that over enthusiasm based on positive personal experiences that people have had?
1: Yeah. Yeah. And then I guess you could also say it's, it's kind of like if you're if you're acknowledging that they're big. Almost impossible problems in the world, wicked problems, as the uh, you know as we often refer to them, things that seem insurmountable. The kind of problems that make us, you know, that, that lead us to be convinced that surely only you know, the, the return of a savior or the uh, interference on, uh, by by aliens could possibly help us mm-hmm. solve, like humans are just incapable of solving these problems on their own, then perhaps we're putting, we might be putting too much stock in the powers of, um, of a psychedelic substance to somehow fix that for us on an individual level or a cultural level.
0: Yeah, I, I think that's a good point of comparison. I mean, while uh, while we certainly don't want to deny uh, the evidence of the potential positive uses of these things, you don't want to make them a god either. I mean, you, mm-hmm. you don't want to drift into the miracle cure mentality. Because what a lot of these studies show, quite frankly, is that there is a lot of potential for psychedelics in, in treating things like addiction and depression and all that. But they're not miracle cures. It's not like a, you know, th- this fixes all your problems immediately and then the world's a perfect place. Now, there's another reason that we can go to to explain the uh, the anti-psychedelic backlash that I think is probably the most obvious one, right? The countercultural associations with and possible uh, direct effects of psychedelic use. Of course, we all know these compounds came to be associated with rebellion and rejection of mainstream culture and rejection of political authorities. You know, Timothy Leary uh, would would proclaim to people – that kids who took acid quote won't fight your wars, won't join your corporations. I mean that that's scary to the authorities, right? Right. You if know, you I'll... think but they're not going to fight our wars anymore, how are we going to how are we going to
1: fight? They're not going to be a part of corporations. They're not going to found uh, Silicon Valley corporations in the future. Yeah, you <laughs> would
0: know. Well, that's funny. I mean, that turned out not quite to be true. A lot of the – yeah, a lot of these uh, acid takers did turn out to be business leaders. It's obviously not a panacea against business. (laughs) Uh, But I did want to quote a couple of uh, sections from Paulin that I thought were very, very smart on this part. Uh, So first – the first one is where Paulin said, quote, LSD truly was an acid, dissolving almost everything with which it came into contact, beginning with the hierarchies of the mind, the superego, ego, ego, and unconscious, and going on from there to society's various structures of authority, and then to lines of every imaginable kind, between patient and therapist, research and recreation, sickness and health, self and other, subject and object, the spiritual and the material— If all such lines are manifestations of the Apollonian strain in Western civilization, the impulse that erects distinctions, dualities, and hierarchies and defends them, then psychedelics represented the ungovernable Dionysian force that blithely washes all those lines away. That's beautiful.
1: And and that comes back to Terence McKenna's definition of them as boundary dissolving.
0: Yeah, and I think that's largely correct based on everything we've read. But uh, another passage that I thought was very interesting uh, about this counterculture backlash is uh, it goes like this, quote, for what other time in history did a society's young undergo a searing rite of passage with which the previous generation was utterly unfamiliar? normally rites of passage help knit societies together as the young cross over hurdles and through gates erected and maintained by their elders coming out on the other side to take their place in the community of adults not so with the psychedelic journey of the 1960s which at its conclusion dropped its young travelers onto a psychic landscape unrecognizable to their parents that this won't ever happen again is reason to hope that the next chapter in psychedelic history won't be quite so divisive. Well, I mean, it won't happen quite the
1: same way again. But as Paul himself points out, like he grew up in the, the dark uh, times of, uh, uh, of uh, you know, the, the, he basically grew up in the moral panic period. Yeah. So didn't really experiment much with psychedelics when he was younger and really wasn't until quite recently mm-hmm. uh, as, as an older man that he was able to really experiment with them and understand them in a greater sense. So I feel like there are still going to be generational gaps
0: there. Well, that last sentence may be far too optimistic. I mean, the main part I was thinking about was the beginning of this, where Mm -hmm. he points out the idea of rites of passage that expand the consciousness. They are supposed to be passed on from parents to children and weave the generations together. And if the young acquire a consciousness-altering rite of passage that the older generations don't have – That can be terrifying to the older generations. It's like they're not our children anymore. They've been initiated into some other tribe.
1: No, I think it's a great point. I mean, yeah, this was a a new rite of passage that the older generation, by and large, had
0: no experience with. There's one other possible thing going on in the 1960s that I think might be worth mentioning. Uh, which is and we'll, maybe we'll get into more detail about these studies in the uh, in the next episode but there are at least a couple of studies I've been reading from uh, the last decade or so one from 2011 and one from 2018 that are about adult personality change occasioned by use of psychedelics mm-hmm. so you've got these various ways of measuring personality traits and and people might you know your personality might over time sort of be in flux but you know mostly your traits are going to be pretty similar by the time you're an adult, you know right. you around a baseline you might hover, but there appears to be some evidence that using psychedelics can actually change adults' personalities. And so, one of the many things that's been observed is that, for example, use of psychedelics appears to increase people in a psychological personality trait that's known as openness to experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, people who take psychedelics appear to increase in openness. And openness is actually a highly socially significant personality trait. Uh, it's been associated with all kinds of other things in societies in, in various research. Like openness is highly correlated with, uh, with like lack of prejudice and lack of authoritarianism and stuff like you know, uh, appreciation for art and for other cultures and things. I think you'd find the openness personality trait largely associated with like environmentalism and multiculturalism.
1: Yeah, I mean, just if nothing else, like if if you were to become more neophilic and you know, uh, you know, attracted to new experiences, you become more attractive to travel, mm-hmm. and, and, and in traveling, you're exposed to to. Uh, I mean, travel itself is kind of. Uh, I think has a lot to, in common with the psychedelic experience, you know, mm. where so- suddenly you're in in a place that is mostly the same but a little different, and uh, people around you are, are different and yet the same, and it forces you to sort of uh, reconsider who you are in the whole scenario.
0: Uh-huh. So, if this is true, yeah, that that the, there are these cascading effects from the use of psychedelics that may be, on a broad scale, say, changing the personalities of a mm-hmm. young generation, especially changing them. In ways that might not be so congenial to you if you are Richard Nixon or something. Oh, yes. (laughs) That these personality changes could be perceived as a direct threat to the the polity of the country.
1: Yeah. And that's exactly how Richard Nixon saw it. I mean, Richard Nixon is is the uh, anti-psychedelic U.S. president uh, Uh by far. Yeah, I mean, uh, it, it's difficult to unravel all this because on one hand, you have to, you, you have to sort of try and figure out what the 1960s were, mm-hmm. you know? Uh, like, what was the 1960s experience? And certainly, you and I were not around in the 1960s, so we can't attest to it. Um, we do have some listeners, I know, that were, and so hopefully we'll hear from, from you on it. Um, I, I remember my, my father told me once that uh, Jefferson Airplane, Somebody to Love, uh, captured what the 60s felt like, uh, I, but I never had a chance to ask him what he really meant by that. Uh-huh. Uh, maybe he just meant it was an iconic song of the time, which it, you know, it certainly was. Um, but, I, yeah, I guess that one of the things with, it, with the 60s, too, is that, like all times, you know, the older generation is always going to be concerned with what the young generation is doing and how what they're doing doesn't reflect your values. Mm-hmm. Like, I can't relate to the experience of, you know, a, a grown-up uh, in the 1960s uh, you know you know say a middle-aged person looking at the young generation and, and things and asking, oh what are they doing with psychedelics mm-hmm. Uh But like maybe on some level, I I understand that in regards to Pokemon, you know, where I'm like, oh, I I had this was not part of my childhood. And yet it's highly influential for for these kids. What am I missing? And why should I and to what extent should I be afraid of it?
0: Wait, were you one of those preachers going on TV during the Pokemon craze (laughs) saying it
1: was causing devil worship? No, no. Uh, But uh, but I do love that kind of um, I I love the sort of mild moral panics like that, that. that, that arise out of any new thing, be it Pokemon or Harry Potter. Or I think there
0: was one for Teletubbies. Teletubbies,
1: yeah. yeah. So, so yeah, just the fact that there's kind of a generational divide and a, and, a, and a moral panic popping up around something like that in and of itself, I think just is always going to be the case. Mm-hmm. I mean, we see shades of that. I mean, certainly, I think we have, as we've discussed, as we've discussed in the show before and will in the future, you know, we certainly have some issues with um, with mobile technology and with social media and the effects that those uh, technologies are having uh, on culture. Mm-hmm. And certainly, you know, it can lean into to some sort of, uh, you know, crankiness where we look at younger generations and say, oh, they, they don't even know what it's like without social media.
0: That's our grumpy old men issue. Yeah. It's, it's
1: the tech. Yeah. Uh, but we'll, we'll have to come back to that. But... Uh, <laughs> But but yeah the the uh, the older generation looked at the younger generation and they didn't see their values necessarily reflected there values that had just carried them through a world war and of course threatened to carry into one final world war as well and so it it makes sense that these typical generational concerns would be exasperated uh, by the introduction of something new, or at least new from a Western perspective, uh, that was not only consciousness changing, but uh, but also foreign. Yeah, and rem- remember that most anti-drug messaging in America has depended on xenophobic and/or racist messaging. Oh yeah, an association was also made between uh, psychedelics and radical uh, leftist ideologies. Uh, so I think that was very much a factor as well.
0: Well, I mean, one thing that's interesting, I remember from reading the individual testimonials of the people who were involved in the Marsh Chapel experiment. This is mm-hmm. anecdotal. So this is only right. just, you know, the hap- things they happen to report. But uh, I-, I think multiple members of the Marsh Chapel experiment said that, you know, they had their psilocybin experience And it prompted them to go get involved in the civil rights movement. Oh, wow. Uh, So, you know, which, of course, by the, you know, the the conservative authoritarian, uh, you know, white ruling class impulse at the time would have probably they would have seen that as a political threat. Speaking of political threats,
1: uh, let's get back to Richard Nixon. Okay. So Richard Nixon uh, famously considered Timothy Leary, quote, the most dangerous man in America. Okay. And uh, and and he apparently his handlers were even concerned uh, at different times that leftists might try and slip Nixon LSD. <laughs> uh,
0: <laughs> I'm sure somebody was working on a plan there, one of those 60s pranksters.
1: Oh, well, yeah. Actually, uh, allegedly Jefferson Airplane lead singer Grace Slick uh, Planned to slip LSD into Nixon's tea at a White House tea party, because uh, apparently she attended uh, the same college as Nixon's daughter, and there was going to be an event there at the White House. But it, it, the event turned out to be an all-female event, so Nixon wasn't actually there, no. and, and I think she, she uh, got kind of she got scared off uh, by the security and left anyway. She
0: didn't try to give any to Pat. <laughs> <laughs>
1: um, apparently not. Uh, well, she had, they didn't quite make. I think she was accompanied by Abby Hoffman. Uh, who was, yeah. This sounds like an Abby Hoffman scheme. Yeah. So it didn't. The 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 scheme didn't actually make it through the front door. So mm-hmm. they didn't actually get to that level of uh, of decision making. But this all does lead to an interesting question that, that comes up from time to time. Sometimes flippantly, and other times quite seriously. If certain world leaders could be tricked into having a psychedelic experience. Could we change them? Could there be like a Scrooge moment, right? <laughs> Would they see themselves objectively? Would they connect with others or connect with nature in a meaningful and life-changing
0: way? I've heard people say this. In fact, I remember a lot of teenage stoners saying stuff yeah. like this. Like, like say, if you just get all these dictators and, you know, we'd stop all the wars if we could just get people to take acid or, or mm-hmm. I think they'd even just say like smoke weed or something. Oh, yeah. I'm – I mean – I. Again, I'm I'm very open to and, and interested in the many of the reported positive effects of psychedelic experiences, but I do not believe it is a miracle drug in that way. Right, that it can't just in and of itself cure human nastiness. Um, Especially because set and setting are so important. Yeah. I mean, what if you take a drug and if have the a psych- – is the setting is
1: the Nixon White
0: House. Right. If you, you have know? a psychedelic experience where you're just like all revved up on the idea of slaughtering your enemies and yeah. stuff. That, I, I don't know. I don't – I'm not sure that would make things better. Yeah. Uh,
1: Like, one specific version of this question that I've kind of tossed around in my own head from time to time is not so much, uh, you know, what if we, um, you know, what if Hitler took acid kind of a thing. uh, But... Uh, You know, if we look at when LSD uh, uh, came into being, it was first synthesized in uh, 1938 in Switzerland. MDMA was first uh, created in Germany in 1912. And in both cases, no one realized what they discovered. You know, it wasn't until later that they took them off the shelf and looked at them again. Mm -hmm. Uh, But what if these substances had leaked out into Europe, especially Germany before World War II? And granted, LSD would have only had like a year (laughs) <laughs> to, to work its magic. Right. But I'm not the only one who's thought about this. For instance, uh, Terence McKenna in Food of the Gods uh, wondered what would it have been like if the, the Nazis had found out about LSD. Mm-hmm. Uh, quote, uh, "...it is frightening to imagine some of the possible consequences had Hoffman's discovery been recognized for what it was even a moment earlier."
0: So there, I mean, he's looking at it as not necessarily a good thing for everybody who takes it, but like that it could be a facilitator of great evil. Yeah,
1: yeah. I, I He may have gone into more detail on this in other works or lectures, mm-hmm. certainly – uh, uh, McKenna spoke a lot about these topics, but uh, so, but I am not aware of any uh, additional thoughts he had on the matter. But I suspect that they would have probably done much the same as the CIA did in their experiments with uh, with uh, LSD. You know, right. searching for ways to use it as a weapon or a mind control substance and then ultimately find it wanting in that regard.
0: Yeah, and then we've talked about this in other episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind in the past. But yeah, th- that seemed to be the primary focus of like defense-based research on psychedelics in the 1950s is can we get it to make people do what we want against their will or as a truth serum? Right, and
1: and certainly this was the, the deal with the Third Reich. They were in a state of total war. They were interested in rockets, yes, but they weren't interested because of any space exploration uh, advantages. They. It was about weapon delivery. It was about pursuing their own awful and uh, and and racist ideology. Yeah. Um, this conquest mentality. Yeah, absolutely. But on the other hand, uh, you know, Hitler took a lot of drugs, um, uh, especially uh, after 1941. He was apparently taking a lot of stimulants, a lot of opioids, and uh, so you know, one you can't help but wonder, right? Like, what what if Adolf Hitler had taken a bunch of MDMA and LSD? Um, in 1942,
0: well, would that have had any effect?
1: I, I'm suspicious that, that it would have any effect ultimately.
0: Yeah, I, I don't, I don't think I buy the Stoner line that you know just get the dictator to take a psychedelic and they will be cured. I mean, it's hard to know, but I, I'm, I doubt it. I mean, it would be interesting as an experiment, though. Yeah, uh, you know, just, just to hook one of them up out there. Well, another interesting question is instead of like these individual, say, like dose the dictator cases, if psychedelics and psychedelic culture were more widespread in general throughout the world, uh, you know, and throughout industrialized societies going way back. Yeah. I do wonder then, like, if the, you know, the, the common, if the common Drug of choice among industrialized societies in the eighteenth and nineteenth century had not been alcohol, but had been psilocybin or something.
1: Yeah, and I think that's ultimately the more interesting question: is not what if Hitler had taken LSD or or MDMA, but what if they what if they had been at large in um, in German culture uh, preceding the war? Um, and you know, ultimately, like the counter argument to that would be: well, there already was a, a strong bohemian vibe in pre-war Germany, and it it was not sufficient to prevent the horrors of the Second World War and beyond. But yeah, I think ultimately when you see people like Terence McKenna arguing for an archaic revival, for some sort of like return, a psychedelically assisted return to nature and interconnectedness, like they are talking about a cultural movement. They're not talking about strategic doses, dosing of, uh, of, of key individuals. Yeah. If only it were that easy.
0: All right, we've been going a while. I think we got to wrap it up for this one, but we we got to come back in the next. We were originally going to do just three episodes, right? But psychedelics took hold, and now we've been going for three, and we still haven't gotten to the 21st century revival in psychedelic research, which we will focus on next time. That's
1: right. So join us for part four of our psychedelic series here on stuff to blow your mind and I mean who knows there might be a, p- a part five we just we have no idea we have no idea when this is going to end all right in the meantime if you want to check out other episodes of stuff to blow your mind head on over to stuff to blow your that's the mothership that's where you'll find it all uh, you'll find links out to various uh, social media accounts you'll find our t-shirt store uh, also if you want to interact with us and uh, more importantly interact with other folks who listen to the show and have insightful things to share about it and related topics uh, head out on over to Facebook they have have, uh, the discussion group there. call it, We call it the discussion module. The Stuff to Blow Your Mind discussion module, you can uh, apply, join, and discuss
0: there. It's the only good thing on Facebook. Pretty much. <laughs> anyway, big thanks as always to our excellent audio producer, Maya Cole. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback about this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stuff to blow your mind.com.